Hello, and welcome to On the Road with Pactimo. I'm David Newcomer, and I'm your host. Pactimo is a Colorado company known for quality, reliability, and unsurpassed customer service. Since 2003, we've shipped over 1.5 million garments to Olympians, national champions, teams, clubs, and individual cyclists around the globe. On the Road with Pactimo presents conversations with the people that make it happen. We're going to bring information to you from some of our favorite customers, industry partners, and nonprofit organizations. We'll also provide some insight to the process and products that make Pactimo your choice for custom cycling apparel. Welcome back and thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited to share this episode. We have the opportunity to interview the incomparable Laura Van Gilder, the winningest female professional racer in the history of the sport. She and I had a chance to sit down and talk about racing, her training schedule, her intense race schedule with over 70 races every year, every season for the last 26 years, and uh, some a little bit about dogs too at the end, which was really fun. We got a chance to talk about uh, a little bit more with Laura than just her racing. Uh, We're all used to seeing those interviews from the podium, and she does a fantastic job representing the sport. We get a chance to dig a little bit deeper and let her voice some of the experience that she's gained in her racing career, both as a an extraordinary criterium racer, and then more recently as a cyclocross national champion this year as well. So let's get started. Our pro-level ascent collection has been developed over the years through input and rigorous testing by dedicated professional cyclists all over the globe. These garments not only offer a race fit, but include all the essentials for long distance comfort and durability. The Ascent 3.0 cycling jersey follows upon the success of our Ascent Air and Summit level jerseys, incorporating the same philosophy in terms of pattern, fabrics, and finishing. The result is a jersey that weighs significantly less than the previous Ascent iterations, and through our silhouette engineering offers a slimmer form fit. Not only does the Ascent 3.0 feature the new Swift Dry, a highly breathable four-way stretch fabric, but we've included Euro-length sleeves and silicon impregnated compression armbands for all-day comfort. Three full-size pockets with reinforced structural capacity and stability allow you to load up for long training days. It's the new workhorse for a new generation. Check it out at www.pactimo.com. So how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I had a very nice ride. Easy. It was pretty windy. Well, easy. I don't know. It's never easy near my home, but uh, it, it's pretty windy, but there's a, kind of like a cold front coming in the next few days, so I thought I should take advantage of nearly 40 degree temperatures despite the wind, so You know, good. 40 is not too bad. We're finally getting back to that, I think, tomorrow, and then we might even hit 50 on Sunday, so I'm looking forward to it. It'll be, uh, it'll be nice. Wind makes it a little, wind, what do you think, takes off like 7 to 10 degrees typically in terms of perceived cold <laughs> yeah it depends yeah, on how I, much I just, wind right how much wind in the direction and if it's sunny or not for instance i headed out it was still a little bit sunny and i actually rode up into a some sleet and i was like oh my gosh <laughs> no and um and then i rode back home and it was sunny again um so i was glad but oh, very yeah nice. that's not a bad say, way to end it no, no. And I would agree. It depends on the day, um, sunny, cloudy, and if you're climbing or, or not right. with that wind. But yeah, I, w- I walked outside and it was supposed to be like 45. And 
I kind of dressed for 30s, which I didn't regret when I had got into the overcast little squall thing. Um, you know, but that's that's winter riding. You, you get, or at least around here, you so know, you have to be prepared. Where is around here? I know you're in Pennsylvania, but where exactly in Pennsylvania are you? Uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, the Poconos. Okay. So we're about, we're near the Delaware Water Gap and um, those areas. So... It's, um, yeah, it's not, it's not mountainous, you know, we don't have mountain weather to contend with, with storms like that blowing in or elevation, but it's, um, but you've got some hills, you've got some work out there that you can uh, put in for sure, right? Oh yeah. When people come here, they say, how do you do an easy ride? And I realize when I go to places like, um, Wisconsin, (laughs) that there's, there is something called an easy ride and a coffee ride <laughs> and something flat. And there's not that around here. You're or at least directly outside my door. I typically drive to find some flat, flattish riding because that gets a bit old. And certainly in the winter, you don't want to be, you know, getting sweaty and then descending and right. getting sweaty. But there's nothing super sustained. Probably the longest climbs are maybe 15 minutes. That's not uh, bad. No, you know, it's funny. We have the same thing here. Everyone thinks of Colorado as being very mountainous. And on the front range, you've got a choice, obviously. And it's not a far ride for me to get to the hills. But even my rides around home or my rides from here to work and around and back, are they're anything but flat. Uh, it hmm. seems to be, but there's always climbs. There's always, you know, a couple thousand feet of elevation in a day, just getting to where I need to be and back again, whether it's a training ride or commuting or whatever. Um, but that's cool. I didn't know that about Pennsylvania. I've not actually been to Pennsylvania. We've got a great sales rep out there that I need to make the time to, to get out and visit and, uh, uh, try and put some miles in that way when I can. So, um, that's cool. So yeah. tell you what, I've got a few things I wanted to talk about and, and actually some of the things we've already been chatting about, uh, are, are fantastic. And thank you again for your time today. I really do appreciate, uh, taking some time out to, to speak with us and, sure. uh, particularly wanted to reach out after your recent national championship this season. Um, speaking of tough courses, oh my goodness. So we've all seen the video of Hartford and the course and the slip and slide and the changing conditions from day to day to day. It was just outstanding. Um, tell me about uh, what you encountered and how things went for you. Well, um, I sort of followed along just like everybody else and um, was happy to see the first videos that David, um, I believe it's David, shared. Mm -hmm. And that got me pretty excited, although I wouldn't say I loved the um, running, the run up the dike. You know, I wasn't looking forward to that. I thought that was pretty sustained. And then I saw the weather forecast. I was supposed to go for a non-championship race on Tuesday. It was going to rain all day. And I thought this isn't going to give me any insight to the course because on my days, it's not going to be this type of weather. And I'll probably mess up my equipment more than I'd like to. So I planned to go Wednesday to pre-ride the course. And it was still very, very muddy, so muddy that... I think I rode one eighth of the course and almost my drivetrain almost ceased. <laughs> so um, I didn't get in any pre-rides that day and everybody was running that day in their races. They were a lot Absolutely. of the races. And uh, 
I, I wasn't as excited anymore <laughs> about it. And then it came to be my day, and of course it had frozen solid overnight, and it was it was like concrete, but it wasn't um, smooth concrete. And to be honest, uh, I there was a fear factor for me sure. because of that on some of the off camber hillsides because I knew that if you were uh, after my I, I never even did a complete ride of the course until I raced it and they were taking parts out and putting parts in per race. Um, which was a little bit unnerving because you didn't know what you needed to go see. And the course was actually so big at that point in the morning, you couldn't get a whole lap in other mm -hmm. than the, the amount of allotted time. So as I said, the, these, this really hard mud concrete type mud, on some of the off cambers, if you made a bobble and were forced to dismount, you were going to dismount on the high side of the bike, which isn't so great for someone small like me. And you weren't going to dismount into nice forgiving mud. You were going to dismount onto like a slick concrete. So there were sec sections of the course that in my mind at the start, I knew I was going to run, which I wasn't necessarily proud of or happy about and I also thought it could cost me the race and that was a little bit disappointing for me going in my you know my head's uh, my mindset prior to the race so I just went like crazy to basically get the whole shot and kind of ride my own race as long as I could mm -hmm. you know until someone came past me so that I could just set set the tempo in my head and, and feel good about it. And it ended up working out for me the whole race. Um, but it really was a bit of a mental challenge for me that day. Um, because I, I didn't want to hit the ground and I knew what that was like because a race in December that was local ended up having those very same conditions. And I unexpectedly, unexpectedly slipped on a corner and when I hit the ground, I thought, oh, right, this is like falling on concrete. Because up until that point, we had been racing on ground that wasn't frozen. And it's a little more forgiving. And you forget that even snow is more forgiving. So um, needless to say, I was really concerned at the start of the race. In the race, I really got into a flow, um, you know, just Real, I was just very consistent. I was leading. I got to pick my lines. I got to go my pace. I was never under pressure, true pressure from behind. You know, someone, no one was nipping at my heels sure. like five seconds away. So I just kept, you know, kind of with a mantra in my head about, you know, steady, pick the right mm -hmm. lines. And then when uh, I finished, there was a complete sense of relief to be finished and to have not gotten hurt and to have ridden consistently, um, you know, for the win. Fantastic. So. Laura, good for you. That's, that's really, <laughs> um, you know, you've had a very interesting cross career. I know it came a little bit later, uh, in your career, you raced crits for 15 years before you took on a cross bike and you made progression really quick. Uh, within the first two years of your cross career, you were selected for worlds and, um, I know it's been something you've been racing for a long time now, but this is the first national championship in cross. Is that right? It is. That's yes. Outstanding. Um, 
It, it, and again, you know, watching the course change, I know that everybody, you weren't alone out there with those fears and those concerns. And the dike, the run up on the dike came pretty quick in that loop. It wasn't, um, it wasn't too far along, too far beyond that whole shot. So I think your strategy was sound. I think getting out ahead and trying to get through that section particularly. And I, I hear what you're saying on the dismount. And it was interesting watching the different lines that were being taken uh, at, at the run-up for the dike as well. Um, and of course, the entertainment for those really slick days on the downhill side of the, of the dike certainly made the rounds uh, as well. The video from, from those portions of the course were... Um, Oh my goodness, miserable looking. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, I think that the the course changes that took place, the the multivariate weather circumstances that played from day to day to day, it was a different course for everybody every day. I don't think it would have made much difference had you had an opportunity to pre-ride the course before your race anyway, because those circumstances, those conditions didn't exist prior to that. You're exactly right. And um the only thing that remained the same was sort of the, the time it took you to got to get to the dike. Mm -hmm. You know, that was really valuable information that you could see on the video right from the get go. So you knew you were going to be running in a minute and 20 seconds, give or take, um, from the start, which is pretty intense. Um, you know, if you're a runner, you're probably jumping up and down. If you're not, you're, um, feeling different about that, but you're right. How, Honestly, the course for some of the races changed lap to lap. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely changed day to day. And I was I was very happy to see that the organizers kept tweaking it um, so that it was, you know, essentially like a fair course. You know, they they figured out the lap times, you know, and cut a lot of their course out. I'm sure they were, you know, not especially happy to do that, but it brought the lap times down enough that you were able to do more than three laps, which on Tuesday and Wednesday, that's what was happening with some of those races. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was exciting. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of riding and, um, you know, it was about finesse on the bike and not making mistakes because you weren't going to get back on your bike quickly and, and catch back on, you mm -hmm. know, the time you lost kind of, really amplified and so it was important to just be smooth Stephen Hyde gave a great interview about that and and you just couldn't stand on it um like you would maybe want to because you the bike was just going to slip out from under you absolutely so the, and you're right Stephen's interview on that was was fantastic and it's spot on with with that analysis too so this is, you've got a break now, but it sounds like you're still on the bike. You're still riding. Training has started over. Have you reset goals for 2017? Have you got a, a plan in mind already? I know that you've got an incredible uh, season, averaging 70 races per season for for your career. Um, I guess the racing probably starts up again pretty quickly, doesn't it? It does. Um, always sooner than I'd like now that <laughs> now that we're racing um, nationals in January. Mm -hmm. I, you know, when we raced it in December, it I ended up having just enough time off to reset. Um, trying to hang on till January is difficult. And then when you finally get through nationals, you're really you take a big breath and you and you say, oh, some, you know, a break and you look around and everyone's doing their base and 
getting ready for training camps and you feel already like you're behind, you know, the eight ball. So, um, I am taking advantage of good weather days and I'm not going to force myself to be outside to train right now because I don't want to crack mentally for my road season. And I'll probably begin my racing in March. I may do some fringe races here in February, but, uh, the focus will be March and then full tilt into April with maybe not the, the pro calendar fully because there are stage races that I won't do, but certainly all the, all the big criteriums, all the big race, the criteriums that offer great prize purses for women and, and good organization. And right now I'm hoping actually to build a small team uh, to be racing with throughout the season. It'll be Mellow Mushroom sponsored, of course, and I'm bringing over Van Dessel as well. But yeah, I'm looking to do a, com- a complete season of racing until September again with that overlap of September and August with cross and road, which is always interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. Those final weekends, I typically end up doing a cross race on one of the days and a a criterium on the other. But there's such good racing on the East Coast for criterium racing in September that I just can't pack that in. And and I do love cross and I want to start getting my feet wet in that. So You'll find me dressed up in all different uniforms on all different bikes. <laughs> and um, it's a little bit, you know, people kind of look at me, what are you, you know, are you crazy? But I love it and I, I can't give up either. Um, don't make me choose. Just just give me enough time to drive from one race to the other. And I probably would do two races in one day. I wouldn't doubt that at all. In fact, I was going to ask you about that. With that many races on the schedule, that's a lot of time on the road. Um how do you manage with, how do you manage with the, well, and I wanted to ask you a couple of things you'd mentioned earlier to me that you don't use power for training. You haven't ever used a heart rate monitor for training. Or I shouldn't say ever, but you don't use a heart rate monitor for training. You joke that you don't even have a Fitbit, which is funny because my daughter does now. And she's telling me at every opportunity, how many steps she's got in the day, which is fantastic. But, um, tell me a little bit about your training and with maintaining a schedule as intense as you do, how that's structured and what are your considerations for recovery and for travel and or injuries, which I don't hear you ever mention, which maybe you're one of those just amazingly blessed individuals and athletes that, um, oh my gosh, I wish I could be, but, uh, you don't seem to get hurt. Huh. All right. Well, we'll, 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 we can start with that part. Um, the, the injuries, surprisingly, the injuries that I have had, have been typically in the cross season, um, some predicated by, you know, slipping on the course and then trying to do a run afterward and realizing that wasn't a good idea. But um, actually most of my injuries have come from walking my dogs or walking shelter dogs. Okay. (laughs) Um, You know, just probably a result of sort of the running that goes on at cross races and then, you know, coming home and and being tired and, Mm -hmm. you know, getting taken out by one of them hitting my knee or, or something like that. But, um, I have had a very, I've been very lucky in my career. I certainly, I've hit the deck a lot of times in criteriums, but it's mainly resulted in road rash and cuts and, 
cross the same, you know, I've ended up with stitches a couple of times and typically the, the injuries have been minimal enough that I'm able to race the very next weekend. I think last season, the only injury I incurred was a calf pull Hmm. and, um, I was uncertain what it was. And when I finally had it diagnosed, they basically just said, you need to um, not do any sort of sprinting running efforts for a while. So I chose to, you know, sit out several cross races because you really can't do a cross race and not do an ex- an explosive kind of run. Sure. I mean, the reality is to, to mentally think that probably you're not going to think of it. And I didn't want to, you know, purposely prolong my recovery. Um, so, so in that regard, you know, and, as far as the amount of travel and racing, my body is just always really adapted well to that. And I'm really not a good rester. I never have been from the beginning of my cycling career. I worked in the restaurant, my Mm -hmm. family's restaurant, and I was a waitress, a hostess and a line cook, all very physical jobs. And because I was 26 when I began and I was, funding essentially my own racing to some degree. I had a little bit of sponsorship money toward entries. I, you know, I had a job, I would train and I had a, a home to keep up, you know, I'm, you know, as far as you need to grocery shop and sure. do laundry and all of that. So I, I never put my feet up you know, <laughs> pretty much after dinner and after the chores are done. That's, that's the sitting downtime. And, um, again, I'm different than a lot of people. Would it have made a difference over the entirety of my career to rest more and recover more? Perhaps. Yes. I mean, the, probably one of the big things I learned several years in was that I should take two days off the bike, probably (coughs) one or two, a Monday or a Friday. And I should use those days to get all of the things that were important to me in my life, which for me is a clean house and the laundry and grocery shopping. (laughs) You know, that's important to me. It it has to happen, right? You know what, though, Laura, I'm going to have to argue with you on one point you made there as far as whether it would have made a difference. I think there's an argument to be made based on the number of races that you have won that your schedule and your training has been just fine. (laughs) Well, thank you. I mean, I, I just, I always say an object in motion stays in motion and I, and I just have to keep staying in motion. And, and once, but to be honest, once I realized that take giving myself, um, permission to take one or two days off the bike and, and then invest in a, in quality workouts the other days Sure. and by quality, I've never done structure what I prefer to do is to ride with other people, Mm -hmm. um, group rides or training races. I'm much better with a carrot than I am creating this imaginary, imaginary carrot dangling in front of me and doing an interval. So, and the train around here also dictates that I can do sort of somewhat of an interval training. So once I, once I didn't, lament being out there five days a week and think, Oh, I'm so tired of riding my bike. I knew that I had these other days to do what I would 
like, whether it was recreational or chore based, then suddenly I think it made a difference in my training. I was getting quality on certain days and I was giving my body a break from just pedaling on the other days. So that and um, travel has never really affected me. I'm very grateful for that. I mean, I've flown in the day of a race. I've flown to two races in one day. I've I operate fine on very little sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have dietary restrictions that would add stress if I couldn't find what I needed. Um, yeah, I and I sort of enjoy the the buildup of it all. And I've had a lot of um, good luck with my traveling. I think my bike has only been lost maybe twice and. And only one time did it not make it there on that very day and someone lent me a bike and I told the promoter that I would race on that bike um, that he found for me, you know, because (laughs) I had had promised him that I would come and I had driven to the race to say, look, my bike didn't arrive yet. And he's like, well, if I find you one, will you race? And I said, okay. And I (laughs) hung out at the back the whole time and, um, you know, out of respect for him and sure. his event. And, um, I tried for a preem and then I went back to the back for the last lap because, you know, I didn't want to risk this person's bike or my, you know, ability to, to handle it because mm-hmm. it didn't fit mm-hmm. appropriately. But, um, so I've had a lot of good luck with that. And I do typically try to get into the city that the race is held on and, and also leave pretty quickly. So I'm, I really uh, minimize my time away from home and maximize my time at home, which tends to make me feel a little bit more settled. I think that there's a lot to be said for what you mentioned earlier about the body in motion stays in motion. And I can certainly personally attest to aches and pains that happen when I'm off the bike for a duration of three or four days, unplanned or otherwise, um, that don't occur when I ride. And so... You know, I think that the, what you've said is, is true for a lot of people. And I know that uh, within teams that I've raced with and, and people that I work with and race with and, and ride with today, they, they're they just as edgy and just have just as hard time about the idea of putting their feet up. And the idea of a, of a complete rest day is so foreign to so many people that, um, that I race with. There's only one gentleman I've known who um, had this almost Zen-like quality uh, when he was not racing or when he was not training even just walking in the grocery stores with him would drive me crazy because of how slowly he was going. It was almost <laughs> sloth-like and everything he did when he wasn't on the bike. Um, and then when he was on the bike, it was a complete opposite story. He was just amazing and fast and, and furious. But um, that's not something that you see very often. I think more often than not, I see the same uh, type of attitude and mentality that you've described in terms of I almost get more edgy when I'm not on the bike than I do if I'm maybe even overtraining just a bit. Um, but mid-season, let me ask you this. In, in a mid-season scenario, what does a week look like to you? A Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Um, Monday, maybe an easy ride just because uh, it seems like pedal the travel and the race out of your legs typically – you know, you're, you're hopping on the plane right after the race and maybe not cooling down Tuesday, 
a group ride or a long ride of, you know, three-ish hours um, or flip-flop that with Wednesday, um, three-ish hours. And then Thursday night, there's a training race, a criterium that I could do that's about an hour an hour in length mm-hmm. duration. Um, and then Friday, again, another maybe perhaps an easy ride or a day off, depending on how I feel from the week. And the, the Monday and Friday can be those easy rides would be one to two hours depending. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's mainly sometimes the bike has always been a place for me to clear my head too. So sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm going out and riding on those days for that. Absolutely. Um, so, but if I can find people to ride with, I'll tag on with them. And, you know, if if they pick the pace, sometimes I'm, you know, I'm agreeable to it. And sometimes I know that, you know, it's harder than I'd like to go. I mean, I tend to like to, yeah, ride steady state. People would probably be sh- shocked. That's why I don't. I'm not on Strava anymore because I always say nobody really needs to know how slow I go and do my <laughs> training rides. And it's. I mean, it's it's true. I I think because I race so much, um, and that's not to say that that's ideal for me or for anyone else. But it's it's mentally what I can handle, and I think the mental game is pretty important. Um, you know, you have to be realistic about your life balance and your sport balance. And, um, you know, not that you can't improve and tweak and, and maybe do a little more intensity, but, um, no, I don't think what you're doing is, <laughs> is out of with, again, with the, with a heavy race season, with a road and cross season back to back and uh, intertwining one another as well. You taken as a whole, Laura, your workload for that season is tremendous. And people that I know that train for ultras, say, uh, you know, 100 mile plus foot races, they run amazingly slow in their training. Great mileage, a long ways, a lot of time, but the pace is never, they're not looking at intervals. They're not looking at uh, anything other than, you know, a very comfortable, maintainable, long distance pace. And there's a lot of benefits to that too. And I think that it depends on the event that you're training for, or in this case, maybe the season that you're training for, if you take those 70 plus races into consideration, again, your record speaks for itself. And I think that the training it's, I, I don't mean to laugh that you say that you don't need to see how people, how slow you ride at first. I doubt that, but, um, Strava is addictive anyway. You don't need to, to jump on that. It's, <laughs> it's crazy out there. Um, Hey, let me ask you a, a couple questions about racing criteriums versus racing cross. And I know that you raced road, uh, exclusively for a long time before you came over to to race and cross. What did you bring to the sport of cyclocross from criteriums? And conversely, what did you learn after racing cross for a few years that benefited you back on the road? I think when I came into cross, I, I brought my tactical um, ability to race, mm-hmm. which oh, I would say was... Uh, I don't know if the right word is criticized by my competitors, but obviously I, I raced, 
I would try to race the cross races. I'd race my strengths. So if I couldn't get away from someone in the cross race, obviously I would leave it to a sprint or perhaps I wouldn't pull. I mean, I, uh, and so sometimes, you know, people were like, come on, come on. You know, that's, that's not fair. I don't know if that's the right word, but, um, but I, you know, I used my strategies and my tactical prowess, but I also looked at the courses and would figure out where I was the felt that I was the strongest over my competitors mm-hmm. and try to be patient and execute a move at that point. I mean, you're fool. Anyone's foolish if they think they should always just leave it for a sprint because there's a whole lot that can go on in a cross race. Some, some of that's not as much in your control as you think. And, you know, you just don't want to leave it to that, but everyone looked at it like that. Like I was just a, a wheel sucker and it wasn't, I had, if I could see that someone else was maybe stronger in this area, I would just be a little bit more, um, you know, pick and choose my, sure. So I think that's what I brought over, um, to it and my knowledge of how to, you know, maybe pack ride if we ever were in those situations on some courses, you know, and, and how to do that. And certainly because I was more of a punchy crit style racer, I sort of used that style of racing on the courses to, you know, to try to get away or get an advantage over the other riders. Um, and then conversely, I don't really know. I'm not really certain that I brought anything from cross back over into the crit racing. I mean, fortunately people would say that I was a good bike handler. So I don't think I brought any, any of the skill from cross back into crits and yeah. Okay. I pro- yeah. I don't, I don't know that it, it worked the other way, but that's not, that's just, I think because it's such a different style of racing. The reason that, that I en- have enjoyed cross so much though, is because it's so engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes now in crits, when you know, it's just going to end up in a field sprint because of the nature of the course and the team dynamics, I get, I get a little bit frustrated because I'm not engaged that whole time. You're just waiting and waiting and waiting for that right. final 400 meters, you know, yeah, 200 to the sprint, but you know, you've got to get into your position, you know, further out than that. And it's a little bit nerve wracking and it's, you know, whereas if you get, if you start thinking that far ahead in a cross race, you're probably going to make a mistake pretty directly. Your focus has to be on, all each segment that you're on on the course in a cross race or you know you're you're gonna lose it (laughs) very true very true laura that's outstanding i'll tell you what let me ask you just a couple things about something else that we share in common and uh and it's it's with animals i know that you've got five dogs and you spend a a lot of lovely time helping out with some animals, shelter animals that you take out, you arrange play dates, you take them for walks. Tell me a little bit about the volunteer work you do on the side. Well, I started doing uh, animal shelter volunteering in 2009. Um, My boyfriend suggested I get a hobby (laughs) (laughs) because I was getting a little bit too um, 
focused on, I don't know, sort of the drama of cycling, you mm-hmm. know, and, and we know that there's a bigger world out there than just our, our cycling world and our cycling goals. So, um, and I said, I don't think I can do that because I'll bring everyone home and I'll be too sad. And at that point, our shelter was, was a kill shelter. Mm. It was not no kill. So that was the reason. And he said, every dog needs a walk. And I went there and it, it was a pretty, um, depressing place. Um, the animals were not walked and let out of their kennels as much as they should not, you know, not enough period. Was this a place close to home? It was, it was only maybe 20 miles away. Okay. And I threw myself in, I became really emotionally attached to trying to get up to 36 dogs out and walked once a day. And, um, and it took, nobody came home with me. Um, surprisingly, you would think all 36 every week would have probably been living in this house, but that wasn't the case. Um, I just completely invested myself in doing that. And of course I was training too, and I just championed their cause and it's, um, and that was great. I mean, it was emotionally draining of course, but I knew I was helping the animals and that shelter closed and then it reopened as a no kill. Okay. Um, about a year and a half after that, I did end up actually adopting one dog from the kill shelter. She was a long-term resident and, um, her owners didn't want her after a court case and I took her and she's been with me since. But, um, so when it was a no kill shelter, things really began to improve and they found their way and they've made great progress and they have plenty of employees and plenty of volunteers and the dogs have a protocol of being walked in the morning and at night. And I helped them figure out a system that was communicative about how much the dogs had been out so that some wouldn't get overlooked. Okay. And, and then, um, I began to do play groups with the dogs and we hired the foremost trainer in the country from dogs playing for life to come and give us a seminar on how to do that. And it's, um, it's been, you know, very instrumental in, in changing our, sometimes the way we think about some of the dogs who are being kenneled in, in our shelter, because, you know, often being in isolation as they are basically brings out bad qualities and you might deem a dog, um, dog aggressive, or you might think of them in some way. And once you allow them to get out and be with other dogs and playing, you realize that that's not really their true personality. So that was, that was one of the most powerful experiences I had when I started play groups with the dogs at the shelters. And I had not experienced sort of pure joy like that to, to know that you were giving them the opportunity to do something that they so desperately wanted. But of course, you know, they, they can't open their kennel door and go play with their friends. And, and then to, to see them move on to happy homes because people had other dogs or had relatives with dogs and you knew this dog would be fine with them. And it just opens up a lot of opportunities adoption opportunities. And, um, so I realized that that quickly became my second passion 
you know, to make a difference in the lives of shelter dogs and to improve their quality of life while they are residing there and in hopes that it's a very temporary place for them. What a cool story. You know what? Thank you, Laura. And like I said before, that's something that my daughter and my wife and I are looking at doing as well. And I'm divesting from some of my own cycling interests and stepping down from some of the volunteer stuff that uh, I've been doing within cycling to to consider this same direction. Um, the trainer that you had come in, what did they teach as far as like selecting compatibility for these play groups? Was that the focus or what was his uh, his or her input? Uh, well, her, na- her name is Amy Sadler, and actually she's based in Longmont, Colorado. Oh, really? Okay. And she's based out of the Longmont shelter. She, um, I'll look she her began, up. Yeah, she began this in, um, in Long Island, and she started it at the Southampton shelter and then, and then the Longmont shelter, and now she, her organization is Dogs Playing for Life. And uh, basically, you know, they – try to evaluate the dogs based on, um, their play styles. And, and they, they give you a lot of information to begin, but in many ways you're, you're just bringing dogs into an open area together and, and you're doing it selectively. You, you find a, a very balanced dog and you start with them and you have tools, if you will, mm-hmm. to control the environment. You're keeping leashes on the dogs so that you have, you know, some way to separate them if need be and some other distracting kind of things like, you know, shaker cans, just so that if you need to restore a little bit of order. Sure. But, um, yeah, you just they work with the shelter staff to try and determine some of their personality traits. But as I said, you know, barrier reactivity doesn't necessarily mean that they're not dog friendly. Leash reactivity, say you and I are walking two shelter dogs outside yep. in the yard, just because they're they're vocalizing and pulling and straining doesn't necessarily mean that there's um, their enemies. Sure. And, um, and that's, so she tries to, to give you the, um, information so that you're not prejudging the animals and that you're, um, looking at them based on some, some other, uh, oh, you know, actions that they're doing. And, um, and I know that when I began on my own before she came, I would just, on very quiet days where there weren't, weren't a lot of distractions out in our yard, I would bring dogs up to the, the fences of the other dogs. And sometimes I noticed that they weren't reactive and I just had, mm-hmm. would get a feeling that this is going to be okay. Right. Um, you know, a play bow, a slight tail wag. And, you know, there's a lot of dog communication that, that isn't um, aggression as much as much as you might observe, you know, the vocalizing and the stiffness, you know, some is, and I, I wouldn't, I'm not great at it and I don't have a, you know, I, there's a lot more I need to learn, but, um, it's, it's very exciting. And I know when, just when you see those first play bows and, and, you know, the loose bodies of the dogs beginning to play, 
and after you've seen, you know, nothing but stress from them in this environment, Mm -hmm. you know, that makes it all worth it. But she has a, a, a very good structured, um, course that she will come and present at the shelters or a lot of it is provided online so you can institute it on your own too if you feel capable of that and you know it's it's changing the lives of shelter dogs and and uh, you know it it's true when they play they are playing for the chance to stay alive essentially because they're not being labeled and restricted so that's why it's called Dogs Playing for Life. That is you know, beautiful, Laura. Thank you. You know what? I will absolutely get in touch with Amy. Even just listening to you talk, you remind me so much of uh, of my days back at the University of Colorado when I studied under uh, Dr. Mark Beckoff and had a cognitive ethology course with him. And he's uh, been involved with research in, in dog behavior and, and nonverbal uh, communication with animals. He's It's so funny. Whenever I see him in a documentary or a PBS show and um, see my old professor on screen. I'm pointing him out to Mackenzie and all these things come back with just listening to you talk about Amy's approach to this as well, which sounds very uh, similar and down the same roads of, uh, of, of those understandings. It's you've, you've talked me into it. There's no question. This is what we're going to be doing soon. So Laura, thank you so much for your time today. Um, talking with you about racing and getting an opportunity to to spend a little time with you today and, and about training and, and the animals, everything. It's it's really been very nice. And um, we love supporting you. And you've always done such an amazing job watching you in interviews and reading interviews with you. You're always so respectful of the sport and the sponsors and the races themselves. We need more athletes like you, Laura. Thank you so much for everything you do. Oh, thank you. That was very nice. Well, it's fun. I I enjoy talking about the things that I'm passionate about. (laughs) Excellent. Well, you have a good afternoon and um, we'll talk with you again soon, I'm sure. Okay, great. Thanks, Thanks, Laura. Well, there you go. I hope that you had as much fun listening as I did in speaking with Laura. Just such a fantastic athlete, such a great person to work with. I love the whole concept, and I've shared with this so many people since uh, since we had the chance to talk. The body in motion stays in motion. Couldn't be said better. Thanks again for tuning in to On the Road with Pac Timo. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. And until then, take care, be safe, and have a good ride.